Welcome to The Driven Entrepreneur, where we sit down with visionaries, trailblazers, and entrepreneurs and discover why and how they do what they do. We'll get the backstory, plus plenty of life and business lessons along the way. Here's your host, Matt Browning. Welcome to episode 119 of The Driven Entrepreneur. How are you? Man, I'm so glad to be back here. What a week. What a week it's been. I'm your host, Matt Browning, if you haven't met me before. If you're new to the show, welcome. Subscribe, rate, and review. <laughs> no, I, I just barely met you. So if you're new to the show, definitely subscribe so you can listen to some of the back episodes and pick a few that, uh, that look really great for you. If you have been listening for a while, hey, welcome back. Glad to have you here. This, week, this week's a real special week. There's a lot going on in the week, and I want to talk today about leadership. Um, I have a, a real special guest on leadership. I think th- this person is probably better than anyone I could imagine to talk leadership. But my question for you is, are you a leader? Do you see yourself as a leader? And what does it mean to be a leader? You know, are you, are you leading people? Are you leading teams? Are you looking to lead someone uh, in your life, in your business? The Driven Entrepreneur Show, of course, is all about understanding and uncovering the backstory about people who have created great uh, milestones, success, uh, achievements at some point in life. And, you know, so we can learn and pick their brains a little bit and really learn the human side of it. And this week, I have someone real special. I think you're going to enjoy this tremendously. I sit down for a little longer of an interview. Uh, lately, with our syndication partners, we've been doing, trying to keep it at 30-minute interviews. So this one's going to be kind of a double header, and this will be an hour show. So sit down, buckle in, and get ready for a phenomenal interview with uh, someone I'm so excited to have, Craig Womack. He's a former president and COO of Sharper Image. I'm sure you remember those stores. Uh Things have changed over the years, but in 1985, he started with the Sharper Image and helped grow them from four stores to over 100 profitable stores. So these are the stores that are in the malls, and the Sharper Image got really famous for having uh, those unique invention-style things. I had For years, I had, uh, I don't think I still have it, but Craig said he does, uh, an automatic tie rack. Those deals when I was in the mortgage business back in the day, I got a Sharper Image tie rack, and it's this thing where you 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 clamp it over your uh, what do they call it the pole that's in the closet where you you know you hang the hangers on, and you can fit anywhere from they have twenty ties or even a hundred ties, and it's it looks like the dry cleaner. You hit the button and the ties rotate around, and it was just such a great invention. So they had those things, and they have the foot massagers, and they have little laser things, and they have special barbecue uh, little mini technology things. Maybe you have one of those wine corkers that are the automatic where you put the wine into it, you know, the bottle, you press the button, it automatically goes down, drills itself in and pops the cork for you. So those are the kind of things that they had. And, you know, he took over and took that company from $60 million at the time, which ain't too shabby, to over $275 million in revenue with his, with his tenure there as the president and then also as the COO. Um, but, you know, we talk about all sorts of things in the interview where he started with the Gap company in 1971 as the director of stores, and they went from four stores. Have you ever been to a Gap store in the mall? My guest this week, Craig Womack, is the one early on of the Gap's history. He grew that from four stores to over 350 stores just seven years later, and he was the director of expansion. So we talk a lot about, you know, how did they pick where to expand, when to expand, uh, how to build the teams out. So there's a ton we can learn, whether you're a business of one or 1,000 people, someone with that many years, he's been decades uh, in this industry. And you know, we talk about, again, going from uh, how to handle the turn. So years after the company changes, we talk about what, the, what happened with the Sharper Image uh, in the interview. You know, and if you're familiar, it's a lot like uh, almost a, a Circuit City um, and a few of those other kind of uh, stores where it went from you know this massive footprint of physical stores and their own products to now you can still go to like Kohl's and places like that. You can still find Sharper Image products, but it's different. What's happened now is they're licensing the name out to companies that make products, so they're not going to be the same kind or the same quality, but essentially those kind of companies have shifted and changed you know, there's still CircuitCity.com, I think you can go, you know, online, but it becomes more of an online retailer, and it's not uh, the giant that it used to be. So, yeah, we just kind of discuss the, the future of business and the future of companies like this 
And would you get back into, you know, a, a mall-based company or or where you own the, own, the, the rights versus licensing? And just kind of, you know, getting his take on it. Uh, he went from there and also he got recruited as a COO of Human Touch. And you've all at some point probably experienced Human Touch. From 2002, 2008, he, he ran this company. And again, same thing, just phenomenal results. Grew from $38 million in revenue to over $100 million, uh, with him running the show. The Human Touch is most famous for being a partner of Sharper Image originally. They're the ones who produce the massage chairs. So if you ever, and still to this day, you can walk through a mall and you'll see those massage chairs where you put the dollar in, you know, and usually nobody, it's, to me, it seems like nobody's putting the dollar in to get the massage, but those are the nice comfy chairs where you sit in, where there was always, someone always had that, that uncle who you go into his basement and he's got that massage chair and it's a two, three, four thousand $4,000 chair, whatever it was. Uh, but everyone had that uncle who, who has a, the, the really expensive, amazing massage chair and you just, you know, it's the thing you gotta have. Uh, so he ran that company for quite a long time. They did a lot of other things besides massage chairs. But again, we'll talk about that. Um, we'll also talk about mindset. So we get into, I ask a lot of questions about, like when I think about running a company that's hundreds of millions of dollars with hundreds and even thousands of employees and everyone reports to him, how do you not curl up into a ball of stress under that kind of pressure? And how do you manage stress? How do you manage guidelines? And how do you manage um, expectations? you know, for people. Um, so again, just to give you an idea of the kind of things we get into, make sure that's relevant for you. You know, um, when you have a rapidly growing company, uh, I ask, a, I think a, a great question. He gives a, a wonderful answer about, do you grow up leaders from within or do you find leaders from outside? And how do you, how do you raise up people into a management position without letting it go to their head? Uh, we talk about how do you find people from the outside? I t we, he gave me a phenomenal answer about interview tactics, about how to find the right people. And he has a lot in common with Richard Branson at this point, where you know we, we get into interview tactics and how you can find more about the person just from how they interview versus the actual uh, experience themselves. So, so much to get into. Without any further ado, let's jump into this week's episode with Craig Womack, former president and CEO of The Sharper Image. So, Craig, I am so uh, so thrilled, really, and, and honored to be able to spend some time with you. I, I really enjoyed our chat the other day, and uh, and grateful you made the time. So, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for coming on this morning. And uh, thanks for inviting me. Hey, look at that. Uh, a show up and an invite, there's there's nothing better than it. <laughs> so, I, I'd love to jump right in with you. You, you have a, an incredible uh, corporate work history. And so many times on the show, we, we talk to these entrepreneurs and startups and, and there's all that kind of like that passionate success, failure energy. And you are one of these people that have just continuously since, I mean, you started The Gap at 1971. How many stores were there at The Gap when you started with them? Yeah, Matt, you know, when the, uh, the specialty retail business was just really starting to expand was in that late 60s, early 70s. So when I joined the Gap in 1971, there were six Gap stores, uh, all in the San Francisco area. Six in San Francisco, and that's it. Now, my, my, my cousin Mark, quick shout out to Mark Borelli. Love you, buddy. Um, he worked uh, high level at the Gap for many, many years, I think in San Francisco and in New York. So I've always kind of gotten this little bit of an inside track, but you started at six stores. T tell me, what was the landscape late 60s, early 70s, um, when you said specialty retail was starting to take off, what, what was sort of the predominant like structure or system that people were going to? And how did stores like The Gap and later on Sharper Image and things like that, how did they change what people expected in, in, in the retail world? Uh, broad question. So the, I think the, the real um, excitement around specialty retail was a shopping environment where you could go in, you could find obviously a specialty uh, set of products. And so, so the gap really was on the forefront of providing, in this case, a very specialized product. So in the early days, so in, when I joined the company, uh, the company only sold pants and only one brand, and that was Levi's. And, the, and actually, uh, it, it, you know, a sidebar, uh, the Gap started out as a um, in selling records, tapes, and Levi's. 
Uh, and so <clears throat> anybody that uh, has a memory of the bags that used to be provided uh, for shoppers at the Gap would remember a black circle on the bags. And that circle represented a vinyl album. And what ended up happening was uh, there was a uh, uh, kind of a theft problem with the records and tapes and people bought Levi's. And so Don Fisher, who was the uh, chairman founder of the company, decided that he would no longer sell records and tapes, but just, just would continue with a, a uh, clothing uh, uh, line. Well, people are coming in and stealing one product and buying the other. <laughs> sense to go down. Um, and you eventually became the director of stores. What kind of what kind of responsibility is that? Is that the sort of um, position where you're looking at expansion and creation of new stores, or are you managing what's existing? Was it more operational or more uh, expansion wise? No, it was. It, we were in a, a very explosive expansion mode. So when I joined, as we said, I, there were six stores. Uh, when I left seven years later, I had uh, participated in opening 350 stores. So I opened the first 22 stores on the East Coast. So a San Francisco or Marin County uh, young man um, flying off to the Philadelphia, New York area to open stores. It was a big adventure. Uh, I was newly married, had a, a young son, uh, and we just picked up and moved and then um, uh, went into Manhattan, opened four stores, opened around the Philly area, Washington, D.C. And then the Gap did something very interesting. They uh, purchased a company called uh, Bonds, B-O-N-D-S. And Bonds was a um, men's uh, clothier, had 100 locations throughout the country. And uh, I actually went and visited or did a site visit on all 100 stores over a six-week period to determine what locations we would take as gap stores and convert those uh, and which stores that we would not take. So that um, gave us a, a, we took 60 of those stores. That gave us a real rapid expansion into the Midwest uh, and through areas that the um, company had not expanded into before. So some was brand new retail, some was was taking over what, what an interesting time too. Now you, I mean, and, and what a fun season, right? You said you're, you're, you're young. You have a, was it one child at the time or two? Yes. We had a, we, we, um, Jason, who's my, my oldest son, we, he was born in 1972 and I was doing these, uh, uh, kind of trips and, and uh, living on the East coast and whatnot, um, in 1973, 74, 75. So, yeah. So, uh, very young, family. Uh, and, uh, you know, we would just uh, get up and go take, you know, we, we, it was all new territory. So we would just go and, and discover uh, locations and, and get staffs built and, and uh, you know, as the company was building its reputation. Now, what kind of, what kind of kid were you, Craig? Were, were, were you the sort of, again, I talked to a lot of, uh, a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of, you know, leadership people. Uh, were you the kind of kid that was like lemonade stands and I'm going to make something of myself or were you just kind of going along? Like, did you expect to get into uh, corporate again, as high and as high profile as you did? Was that like your plan? Did you, did you do that whole world or is this something you sort of stumbled in at the mail room and before you knew it, they said, Hey, can you run the thing? <laughs> Um, I'll give a real brief history. Uh, my uh, dad had a small retail store in our hometown uh, from the point when I was 12 years old um, through the rest of my life. But when I was 12 years old, I was working in that store um, and uh, kind of went through a number of transitions there. When I went into college, I went to a community college uh, and I was uh, determined not to follow those footsteps, uh, not to have to work seven days a week, 24 hours a day. Uh, and I w wanted to be an English teacher. So uh, I w was going through school. I was a decent student in uh, high school, a uh, very good student in this community college. Uh, and I, I uh, met a, a really um, wise uh, English professor who was teaching one of my courses. And I said, to, you know, just for a reference. Um, what what was your you know educational background? What was your schooling? You're here teaching in a community college, uh, and you know what what kind of income do you have? And he told me, and he he was a PhD, but 
it was nine years of college and he was making $12,000 a year. And I wanted more stuff. So I, <laughs> that just wasn't going to fit my course. So I stumbled into retail, uh, started in a stock room in a small JCPenney store, uh, got recruited down to the toy department there, got recruited out of that department into the Gap. And then uh, I've always been there earlier than anybody. So on the job, I stay later. Uh, I don't have the educational pedigree. I have an AA in English. Uh, it's a very high grade, uh, grade point average, but, but I have that two-year degree. And so in each of the cases, uh, in every case uh, throughout my life, I was recruited into the next uh, company and, in, and then I earned the next levels of promotion within those companies. This is a loaded question. I'm curious how how much luck, opportunity, environment, uh, circumstance, and how much elbow grease, hard work, and as you said, you know, showing up early, staying late, being the guy that they can count on. If you had to percentage out of a hundred, how much is the former? How much is the latter to the recruitments and to moving forward? Uh, it's probably fifty fifty. You know, you you've got to in in life you know, it's, it's a lot about relationships and, and being in the right circumstance. But I really do believe that uh, one makes their own luck and one puts themselves into positions to be available. And, and one of the, one of the key factors, and this is, you know, probably in my life, Matt, I've interviewed for uh, positions for uh a number of a variety of positions, but I probably interviewed 5,000 people caused the hire of 3000 people. And uh, what I caution always is nothing ever happens as fast as you want it to be to happen and be ready when it's going to happen. So if you know, there, there are so many times and circumstances um, in one's life and we've, most likely all been in some, to some degree in this vein, uh, where you're looking at a situation and you know that the right decision is not being made and that you maybe could have been put into a position that somebody else got or whatever. Uh, I never let that impact me other than I was just going to work harder. I was going to be more prepared so that when the right circumstances came up, I would be available to take on that circumstance. And, and uh, you know, it, it's hard. It's because, uh, you know, we've all got egos and you want to set a, you know, uh, goals for yourself. And, and, you know, and part of it is just, you know, I'm giving you a little bit longer answer to the, you know, luck versus hard work uh, scenario. But, you know, I'm the type of individual that I get up every morning. I did it this morning. I look in the mirror and I say, how am I going to make this a great day? And then every night I look in that same mirror and I say, well, was it? Okay. And if it was great, I'm going to do it again tomorrow. If it wasn't, what can I do to improve it? And so I just, I take responsibility for that. And I think that uh, what a key word, you know, um, I loved earlier, you said, uh, you know, it's 50% luck, 50% hard work. But then you also said, I believe we make our own luck. And uh, I just think, I mean, that's, that's certainly what I try to live by as much as possible. There's a lot of people out in the world that will sort of, um, they'll complain. And the reason they complain is because they're feeling stuck because they feel like the opportunity is outside of themselves, right? The luck is outside of themselves. And what I'm really hearing from you is you're, you've always taken the mindset of, taking luck back internal, meaning you're taking responsibility over it and saying, yeah, maybe I got passed over. Maybe someone else went in that position. Maybe someone else made a bad decision, but I could either complain that, oh my gosh, I could have done that. Or I could work and do my pushups. So when it comes time to replace, then they're going to see me because uh, like I, I very much am curious what you believe on this with leadership. I, I always believe in raising leaders from within and giving titles to people that are already the person they're supposed to be. Right. So not promoting someone to a manager and then they start acting like a manager. You like you look at someone who is a leader who already is going that extra mile to help the people around them. And that's the person who you want to plug in and say, you know what, let me give you the title of who you've already been being. Would you you've certainly managed 
far more people than I ever have or probably ever will in my life. That's just my little personal philosophy. I'm curious, uh, agree, disagree. Do you have, uh, what's your take on like promotions on, on leadership and on moving people into positions? I, I think that there are probably three different avenues there. One, uh, a very rapidly growing company uh, absolutely needs leadership that gets brought in from outside with outside experiences. So I, I've never had a, 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 an issue with uh, bringing in that kind of talent. Two, uh, there are people that uh, rise to the occasion that, that, as you're talking about, that have that that have demonstrated that leadership ability and are doing the job may not have the title, and uh, I think that they absolutely need to, to get the title and be moved into the appropriate position. And then, unfortunately, there's a third, and that is kind of um, leadership because you're there or you get the position because you're there, and that's where companies have a, a, a challenge. Because you've got an opening, uh, you don't really have anybody that's qualified, so you take the best available. That's what you need to avoid. So it is, it's a combination of outside and inside. Uh, and and bringing in, uh, Matt, when I would interview somebody, I'm always looking for three qualities. And, and this kind of leads back into, you know, who is going to rise to um, levels that are going to really help your organization. Uh, the three qualities are, one, um, do you know anything about the company that you're interviewing for? So that have you done any kind of research? Two, are you smart? I mean, you, are you quick? Can you have a handle a conversation? Uh, and three, are you willing to learn? And with those qualities, and you bring somebody in with the innate talents, and they can have learned talents as well, uh, now you build a very strong uh, employee base, uh, support base, and people that can grow up through the company. Uh, I had one, I would tell every individual, I have one uh, dedicated goal to you, and that is I want you to go as far as you can in this particular organ in this organization that you're in. So to rise to that level, to be able to show your skill sets and to really be able to contribute so that you feel great and the company benefits. What a great philosophy to bring in. And that's certainly something that you saw at the gap. I want to talk about the time at sharper image. Of course, this is something that um, certainly you had your hand over everything as the president and COO. Um, you were president from 93 to 98, but you started there in 85. Um, mm -hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about the like the eight years leading up to your run as president and COO? Again, did you start uh, low and come in, or was this sort of one of those recruitment from, you were already you know a, at a pretty high level in the corporate workforce, so did you come in somewhere, recruited in, and then did you know you wanted to be president one day? Did you ever see that as possible? Or were you like, hey, this is a great uh, position and great company? What, what was the plans for you in your mind or in theirs? <laughs> Let me set a, a stage for you here. Uh, in 1985, the Sharper Image was actually six years old. Uh, it started as a catalog company and it didn't open its first retail store until 1981. When I joined the company, very similar to the gap of obviously um, a, a different world. We were, you know, 15 years later, uh, 14 years later, and uh, there were only um, four sharper image stores when I started. So it was a catalog business. Obviously, there was no internet, no online marketing. Um, none of that existed. Uh, so a catalog business and a retail store business, and the, the retail stores were very, very unique. Um, Richard Talheimer uh, is the um, uh, founder um, and brilliant genius behind the Sharper Image. Uh, I have never worked with a more remarkable marketer, product uh, picker, uh, understanding uh, the product marketplace. Um, I've never worked with anybody that's, that has had more um, to do with uh, uh, putting a mark on you know that landscape. 
So when I joined the company, um, I came in to uh, basically oversee the stores. So my title there was director of stores when I started. As we were growing stores and setting up a methodology of opening these stores, because very complex stores to open. You know, when you think about um, specialty retail, Matt, specialty retail suggests specialty. And, and so that you specialize in something. The Sharper Image specialized in a thousand different products, types of products. Everything from jewelry to exercise equipment to watches to toys to, you know, gadget, you name it. Now, when I and think so, of Sharper Image, I always think gadgets. And that's, of yeah. course, I grew up in the 80s. I was born in yes. 79. <laughs> so. <laughs> So going to the malls for me, like in, in the late 80s, early 90s, Sharper Image was that place where you go, oh, what a cool back scratcher slash cigar lighter. And it's like this funky stuff. When you started, was was that like, let me ask you this way. What was the plumb line of product? Like if they said, hey, we're going to have all these diverse products, but really the you know, the, like when Sears started, it was like, hey, we're doing farm equipment. We're doing these tools for these people in our catalog. What was the vision from the founder for like the type of store is this supposed to be? Uh, unique products, hard to find that everybody, I, I'll say this a bit facetiously, that nobody needed, but everybody wanted. <laughs> That's <laughs> the perfect way to describe it, isn't it? <laughs> so, <laughs> That's how I always felt going to the stores. It was always <laughs> like, I can't justify needing this, but dang it, I want it. <laughs> And so, uh, so that line of uh, thinking and product development, um, it wasn't ever a, uh, it's always a challenge to find great products, but the pipeline of products, there was never a lack of that. Uh, the picking the appropriate product, that, that was where the real genius came in. And what we would say is that we're um, sorting through, because choice, frankly, can be paralyzing. And so we're sorting through all those choices for you. And here's the best one. And that's the one that we are going to put out in a marquee position in our stores, in our catalogs. And you are going to benefit from that resourcing uh, so that you don't have to cut, you know, go through all the different uh, choice modules to figure out which one you want to get. In terms of the types of products that uh, were, you know, best sellers, uh, I will tell you that um, that there were so many best sellers over so many categories. Uh, the massage chair was perennially our best um, uh, revenue generator and uh, uh, gross profit generator. Uh, we sold a ton of luggage. We sold a ton of uh, tie racks and uh, sound soothers. Can I tell you, uh, I still, no, I don't still have it, but I did buy one of those rotating, like a 20 or a 50 tie rack, sharper yes. image, battery powered, goes on your closet rod. When I was working in the mortgage and real estate business, I had a bunch of ties. I don't wear them anymore, but that was one of my, my first like adult sharper image purchases. I was so proud. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And the uh, if I actually, if, if we, well, my office is upstairs in my home. Uh, if I walked about 20 feet down to the left in my closet, I have a tie rack in the closet. So, uh, <laughs> you know, and I, 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 I left the sharper image in 1998. So that will tell you, you know, that, that the, uh, the product lasts. And, you know, we sold a lot of products that were very, very helpful. We sold a lot of products that um, you know, you'd look at it and say, well, again, who needs one of those? But, uh, you know, at, at, at one point, um, we were uh, the uh, place where you could go to find a unique gift uh, that um, had very high quality, had great usability, and that then created the aura around the, the company. So from 1985 until 1993, we were in a, a very um, uh, rapid expansion uh, mode, and that didn't mean that we stopped expanding after that. But uh, you know, we went through this uh, economic period in 91 and 92. So 
this company, let me go back. When I started in 85, 86, 87, 88, the company was a rocket ship. Um, everything that we touched uh, just uh, went up. Uh, the stores were opening. Uh, they were beautifully designed. Um, we had uh, uh, remarkable staffing, uh, well, well-trained people. It was just a great, fun environment to go into, as you mentioned, you know, from a shopping environment. And then in 91, 92, you know, everybody was going to be buying Volvos and stomping on uh, aluminum cans to recycle them. And so, you know, some of the uh, bloom came off of the, this glow o- over the sharper image. And we went through a very, very challenging um, uh, situation where um, we had to then adjust to what the consumer was looking to purchase. And, you know, we came out of that, uh, started building in 93 uh, again, and then, uh, you know, just took off. And again, I left in 1998. Now, when you were there, you went from, I believe it was what, about 60 million in revenue to 275 million. Do I have those numbers right? And from That's correct. Stores, four yes. stores when you started in 93, or was that mm-hmm. when you started in 85? Started in 85, yes. Yep. Uh-huh to over a hundred profitable stores I, to see that growth monetarily. It's obviously huge and you can look at different factors, but I always, I, I'm very interested with, with company expansion, not just the monetary growth, but when it's time to expand and I believe there's a season for everything in life and in business, right? How, how did you look at when it was a season to expand and grow because I'm sure there's plenty of times with companies when they go, hey, profits are up, we're making money, this is exciting. Starbucks has a good example when they were growing way too fast and they started saying, well, the more stores we plant, then the more the stock goes up and the more the investors are happy, but they were actually losing money because they were growing too fast and they had to do a huge cutback. How did you look at the season to expand? And did you ever like foretell and say, you know what, something's coming the the landscape's beginning to change. Let's change our focus from expanding. Let's focus on whether it's quality or whether it's product line or whether it's profitability per square foot or whatever it is. What were some of the things that you looked at to figure out the season of expansion uh, or or maybe it's not time for that? Fascinating question. And one that is always very, very difficult to answer. Uh, Life and um, business in the U.S. is based on expansion. There's this, uh, and I, I will say, there's this ridiculous thing in retail called comparable store sales. And comparable store sales is simply uh, this dynamic that suggests that if you have a store and it is in business in 2018, that that store should do more business in 2019. Now, why? So the idea is a store should increase in its business. Yes. Okay. And that's and that, that's just that analysts will uh, look at that, and and you'll see when you see write ups on retail businesses, uh, you'll see this thing that says comp store sales, and uh, you know so because everybody has to grow. And so you have this built-in mentality that that's going to happen. Now, when you look back at that, sit back and philosophically say, well, why? Does that mean more customers are going to come into the stores? Does that mean I'm going to raise my prices? Does that mean I'm going to be a better merchant? Am I going to have products that people want more? You know, why? What well, a great question. It, and what was the just, growth? Was it growth in all areas? Was it gross, net, assets, et cetera? Or was it, there one... Um, plumb line that was more important than others? There's always two plumb lines. Uh, One is comp store sales, and then one is profitability of the company. And so uh, so the the answer to um, how you make a strategic decision of when to expand, where to expand, how to expand, what you should be doing with your business, uh, that uh, is, is just, that really is what um, people get paid the big bucks for is, is, <laughs> is, to, is, to, is to kind of try to answer those questions. Um, specifically with the sharper image, uh, 
we were looking at the time I was there for marquee uh, real estate positions within uh, large metropolitan areas. And the my belief, and this is, I, I was not in the management queue uh, after 1998, but my belief is that the company uh, started to take some second tier and third tier locations because all of the plum locations were taken uh, with the 110 stores that had been opened already. And that created a uh, some real pressure points for the company from a, a profitability standpoint. Uh, and Albuquerque is a wonderful city. It doesn't have enough uh, to support a sharper image store. There's not enough demographic uh, kind of uh, energy there to support a sharper image store. Yeah, yeah. I'd almost say when you mentioned that, I'd almost say like the, that psychographic side of things. Like, you know, I, I grew up and lived in Orange County, California for 38 years. And one of the things I started seeing in, not just in retail, but like say in food, in, in food stores, you'd see more and more organic, more and more local sourced, more and more vegan vegetarian options. And you'd really see, like you could go to an outside mall and there would be 10 stores that all feel similar or 10 restaurants that all feel similar. Mm -hmm. But then you go to somewhere in the Midwest and I'm not knocking the Midwest. I live in Grand Rapids now, but I go down the road in Grand Rapids and you just, you see one option maybe. And you might say, well, come on, why doesn't this vegetarian place come out here? Well, it's because people just don't want to go. The, you know, the, the, the actual psychology of people in different towns don't hit that. So when you say Albuquerque, I think it is a lovely town. And then TV out in Albuquerque is phenomenally nice people. But maybe if you put a, a high marquee, hey, this is a high-priced item. It's a $8,000 massage chair that's really clever, and it's for that perfect executive in your life. They might not see the value in that. I don't know. Is, would that be fair to say? <laughs> yeah, that, that would be fair. And, and the other thing uh, with a, uh, you know, it, all of life, uh, fortunately and unfortunately, goes in cycles. So, uh, you know, in today's world, so we're in 2019, uh, there is absolutely no reason for a sharper image type of uh, organization to exist. Uh, unique, hard to find products, you know, you just a uh, couple keystrokes, uh, you've got the brand, you've got all kinds of sourcing where you can do price comparisons, you can do uh, quality comparisons, um, you know. It, it, we we are uh, Gail and my wife Gail and I are are very frequent um, Amazon shoppers. When we see something, we want something, we log in uh, and we order, and it's here two days later. And so it's it's taken all of that uh, excitement that you used to have when you would go stumble into a sharper image store and discover. Uh, now you can just do it online. And, and so I'm I'm delighted that I am not in the uh, in the product or sharper image business uh, at this point in my life, and uh, had a wonderful run when I was there. You, you certainly did. And last question on this, then I want to turn into more of what you're doing today because there's so much in, in here we can go for hours, and and we don't have that much time. Um, Ten years after you left the company, so you're president and COO from 93 to 98. 10 years later, about 2008, the company takes its first big major turn. It's a bad economy, obviously. 2008, a lot of people know, I mean, everything was crashing from stocks to real estate. I, I got caught in there. I lost a million and a half dollars. Not a good day for me. The company files bankruptcy protection. Um, and then it, it begins going through a change from 2008, 2010 with a, a brand sale um, and all sorts of, of stuff and, and reconfiguring. I guess my question to you is, I'm curious, Looking back, I'm sure, you know, when you see kind of a, one of your children, so to speak, right, a company that you used to lead and run, you probably can't just stay away from what it's doing in the media. When you're watching that happening, with hindsight being, you know, 2020 and all fairness, right, not being critical of the leadership at the time, but having the benefit of hindsight, would there be anything you would have done differently if you were still at the helm? When you watch the market changing, the economy changing, are you thinking to yourself, oh my gosh, you should have done this three years earlier. You should have made this change. Or did you just kind of go, well, is what it is. And you know, it's a tough economy. Just curious if you saw anything maybe that would be insight from, uh, from your time there. Uh, Matt, when I started at the sharper image, 
1985, and I will answer your question, but um, I reached out to folks, I mean, a very new company, to folks who uh, knew about the company, knew about Richard, uh, and, you know, their advice to me was um, phenomenal concept, uh, got uh, great uh, growth potential. Um, it, it has been a challenging environment for people to work in and to stay in. And uh, because the, the, the management style there uh, was very um, uh, entrepreneurial. So they, and they, you know, looked at me and said, you'll probably last about six months. And so, uh, you know, 26, six month periods later, um, I did leave and uh, I really never looked back. So I, I, I would not ever um, even assume uh, any kind of um, oversight or opinion about, you know, what they did after I left and, and how they managed and whatnot. I wished them well. Uh, I had a, a, a f fantastic career there. I, I experienced so much and learned so much and, and, uh, and, you know, was able to take those learnings into, you know, the next phase of my life. So, uh, you know, things happen uh, because of the track that, you know, people take. And, you know, when, when the company did go through its uh, bankruptcy and all of that, um, certainly I was tuned into you know, what was happening, but I was 10 years removed. So it, it, it really wasn't that, you know, top of mind for me. Sure. Sure. Yes. I, I just wonder, and I'm completely an outsider, no retail experience. So, you know, forgive me for that. But when, when I look from the outside, it just, it appears, it seems like the sort of thing, like when they started licensing the name and they're still making sharper image products and so forth, it looks a lot like, like the circuit city path, the Sears path, these, you know, these catalog company specialty stores that at some point you go, you know, Sears built Craftsman and, and the brands have almost become just the name itself. People are so familiar with it. That's where the biggest part of the value was. And w would you say just looking again, just as a kind of final question on that, would the future of Sharper Image be very similar to say the future of like Sears, Craftsman, um, and, and their appliances and that sort of a thing with the name and the licensing and whatnot? You know, probably. And there's a very distinct difference between uh, a Sharper Image product and a product with the Sharper Image name on it. What's the difference? And the difference is that a Sharper Image product was one that was uh, picked from um, a huge uh, offering of different choices and called down uh, and then brought to market by very seasoned um, marketers. Uh, every single product that ever went into a store or into the catalog uh, while I was at the Sharper Image was um, approved by Richard. So that the, the, if it didn't have his endorsement, it did not get into the company. So the founder approved every single product. That's amazing. Yes, and, 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 and remarkably well. So in today's world where the, the, the Sharper Image still you know, has life, uh, it is a licensing company. Uh, you uh, purchase the rights for the license. Uh, you then are able to put the Sharper Image name on your product and then, and then sell that as a Sharper Image item. Uh, much, much different than uh, the original concept of the company. Not suggesting that the products with Sharper Image names on it are not good products. I'm just saying that it's a different type of uh, choice and different type of offering. Sure, drastically different model. And I, I don't want to spend too much time on this part because, I mean, it's certainly you, what a story career you've moved from, from successful company to successful company, massive growth. Uh, and the last piece was uh, certainly human touch when you helped to grow that company, which is the massage chair and certainly other products, but one of the major uh, relationships from Sharper Image. From 38 million to an average of $100 million in revenue with you running the show, uh, phenomenal. When you, when you finished your time at Human Touch, that was, really, was that really the last of the major running 
a large corporation, did you know that it was time to move to a new season? Or did you figure, hey, when now it's time, I'm going to look for, you know, where else can I, what other, what other companies can I run? Or were you starting to look inward and say, you know, I'm, uh, it's time for something different for Craig. I want to move into what I'm doing today. Because you do some really cool stuff today I want to chat about. Mm-hmm. Um, was it because of what you're doing now with the story writing that you shifted from uh, uh, Human Touch? Or was it just it was time because it was time? The, uh, the, the Human Touch experience uh, started in 2002. Yep. Uh, it, it's a family-owned business, and the main, as you mentioned, the main connection uh, that I had there is that I had a, a business uh, relationship and a, a, a kind of a marginal, or a, uh, not marginal, but a, um, a casual friendship with the owner uh, of the company. I was brought in to help sell the company. Uh, so the family and the, the the son who owned the business uh, wanted his name is Matt as well. Uh, wanted to yeah exactly wanted to sell uh, the business. We positioned the company. We sold the business. I stayed on to run it. Uh, we uh, had a just a very very good run. Uh, Two thousand three, four, five, six, and started to have some cracks. Uh, in the business, um, some of them related to uh, Sharper Image, uh, and um, they were starting to um, uh, slip a bit as well. And then in 2008, uh, we got all caught up in the economic uh, situation that you had described from the real estate business, from the retail business, and all that. And we then decided to uh, change leadership. In the company, we were owned by a venture capital group out of the East Coast, uh, and I exited, and uh, new leadership was brought in. So uh, while it, it was a good time to kind of move into a different direction, I didn't really set that time, and then uh, spent the next uh, period of time thinking about and um, exploring what I wanted to do next. I just want to say, I want to talk about mindset for a moment. Um, you know, I feel like you, you've had successful runs with several different large companies and, and again, leading the show in many ways, uh, certainly whether it's president or COO or CEO, I feel like I would have curled up in a ball with, <laughs> with the pressure, the stress, uh, expectations of, of managing and leading a large company with so many stores, so many employees. How, how did you manage like the stress or the expectations? Did you... Did you have any like uh, rituals or uh, uh, something you did every day or something you said to yourself, any guiding mantras, anything at all comes to mind on, on how you would just do that? Or were you just in it? So you're in it. You didn't realize how stressful it was until you were out. <laughs> uh, no, it's, it's uh, any of these types of responsibilities, Matt, uh, come with a, you know, a large bucket of, of uh, stress and uh, the, the way that uh, I've always looked at um, any of these management positions that I've had, no matter if there are three people reporting to me or 20 people, or if I'm responsible for 10 or 3,000, uh, and that is surrounding myself with a great organization, great people. Uh, and the, the other thing that I know people appreciate about me, which helps then relieve the stress, the the individual stress on on myself and others. But I can make decisions, listen, uh, absorb, uh, contemplate, uh, discuss, and then make a decision and stick with it and and do it in a very organized way in a very professional way not just uh you know pull the six gun out and start shooting but uh people appreciate that because it is difficult many times to take ownership of decisions to take ownership of a particular goal because that means you're going to be held responsible and i've never had an issue with being held responsible for something that we're going after so certainly there were times where, you know, the, the stress is overwhelming. Uh, 
And certainly uh, you have to kind of, um, you know, buckle up and move through life. I have tried to be in a, in a physical kind of workout uh, regimen. Um, today, I uh, uh, was mentioning to you before the call, but um, in, in my life over the last couple of years, I've actually got into spin. I spin uh, five days a week. And that really gets my, I do that early in the morning and that gets my more, my uh, morning going and my, my week going. So I've always tried to do that. I haven't always lived up to it and, uh, you know, have just tried to, to work through the, uh, in the best way that I can and get the best result for whatever organization it is that I'm working with. So at this point you have, I mean, you, you've certainly lived a, a, pretty, a pretty cool life. I know you have your, your wife and your two children. Um, they're doing phenomenally. We've caught up on that off air. Um, but over the course of like, you know, where you are now in this season of life, I want to talk about what you're doing today. In 2011, you started uh, uh, your own new venture, which I know you're super passionate about. Life is about moments.com. And it's really about you coming in and helping um, anyone who, who wants to tell it to write their story to preserve their life story, really, um, in an autobiographical type uh, uh, environment, uh, finishing usually with a book, so they actually are, are capturing their life. Tell me about the the genesis of this. Uh, maybe your first client, or like what 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 was it about it that you said, "Man, I want to do this for somebody." I mean, it sounds it's so precious and so important, and too few people do it. I think too many life stories are not preserved. What was it about? the idea of that that caused you to start this and want to do it in the first place? Uh, I've met so many fascinating people in my life and um, have heard so many stories from those people. And it just, you know, I mean, the, 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 it dawned on me that, um, you know, everybody has a story and, uh, it, and a story that is worth preserving. Um, as I mentioned, uh, as when we began uh, this uh, uh, interview, uh, I started out as uh, in in my college uh, kind of discipline uh, as an English major, and I have an AA in English, and I've always written, and whether it's uh, manuals or memos or uh, notes to analysts or whatever, but I've always written. So I have a, a desire to write. Uh, I have a desire to um, meet people and kind of really understand people. And in many cases, uh, the clients that I have are people that do have some remarkable things to share. Uh, and we have now a, a format and a formula for them to work with us and share them, you know, you'll you'll see uh, in you know airport bookstores and 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 uh, Amazon or whatever. Uh, everybody has a biography. Everybody has a story, and uh, and those are those are all uh, done or generally done with uh, celebrities or you know famous people, uh, and uh, uh, certainly that's that that that's great material. But there are, you know, 350 million people in the U.S. and and every one of those has a, a story about their life, and we just want to be able to work with individual clients and help them preserve that as a family heirloom. Uh, the product that we come up with is a, a beautifully produced, hardbound, uh, well-written, uh, punctuated with photographs, appropriate photographs of life story, which um, is uh, will contain. Uh, vignettes. So this isn't, uh, I was born, I did all this stuff, then I died. Um, it's more of a, here are some episodes and moments in my life that really talk to who I am, uh, who uh, I was associated with, how I feel, what I've done. Uh, and, you know, th there's, there's a lot of, of, of interest uh, on the family side, and especially uh, you know, as the, in the, 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 the younger generation, so the grandkids and whatnot, who may not know much about grandpa or grandma, uh, now they can, you know, how they met, uh, their first date, uh, what, you know, how, what they did in their life that was, 
you know, something that maybe the kids don't know, or maybe they do, but now it's, it's down in writing. And now, and it's something too, I think it's so neat that, you know, thousands and thousands of years ago, everything was passed down solely mm-hmm. through oral tradition. And it was about 4,000 years ago, give or take, that humans started writing things down to pass down. Um, and I, when you told me about that, I just smiled because I thought, gosh, how much gets lost? You know, like we write down again, we write down the history of wars, we write down, you know, company histories, but how much gets lost in, in human and individual life history? Because it, it's sad to me that people don't maybe even look at their own life and think, oh, is this worth recording? Is this worth preserving? And I love that you have such a strong opinion of that, that everyone has a story and every life is worth preserving. Is there a certain age that or or a time period in life because you're talking about this um, and i'm 39 i'm like man i want this but is is there a certain kind of an age demographic that you find this works the best i'm sure anyone could do it for any period of life but what's what's kind of the take on that you know it's it um all of my clients uh have been um over 60 and so uh, that doesn't preclude somebody at 25 you know writing their story uh it's just that the the idea of doing it uh, it resonates with virtually everybody. The actuality of pulling the trigger and um, and then getting into the project that's a real difficult uh, uh, trigger to pull for people. And so it's because you know you're you're basically going to be um, exposing uh, you know a lot of what's happened in your life to um you know somebody who is going to be uh, in the way that I work Matt is uh are we make an agreement uh I will then um interview the client um I record the interviews and it depends on you know the breadth of and the scope of of how much that they want to capture uh those uh interviews are transcribed I do that and then I take that and write a narrative and then that's all editable, uh, and then that is crafted into a book. So the the process ha- it does, there is a process, and once we get into it, uh, it's it's been really very well received, uh, and it's very comfortable. The the client simply has to talk, like we're doing today, and um, then you know I'll uh, craft it, and then we can edit it together, and then they have you know they have it recorded. How long before you are your next client? I have been my client for about the last three years. So, so you have so been going I'm, through this process with yourself. I was hoping yes. you would because your life, like everyone's, is worth documenting. And certainly yes. um, there'll be some interesting uh, episodes or vignettes, as you said. I love yes. that. So, if you want to find out more, of it's uh, lifeisaboutmoments.com. What a great website. Um, finding out more about what uh, Craig Womack is up to. You can follow him, of course, at LinkedIn uh, at IN slash CP Womack. And we'll have links in the show notes for everything. Uh, Craig, final question. I'll let you get out of here. Thank you so much for being so gracious with your time. Uh, but I know time is gone. Looking back at this story, career and life and everything, um, if you could change anything, personal or professional, what would you change a specific thing? Or genuinely, would you leave it all the same? I, I, I'm kind of um, processing that question. I would leave it all the same. I would. I just, I, I, I think that every one of the, the moves uh, that I've been fortunate enough to be able to experience has put, you know, another uh, layer of um, just life on on top of me and uh, and in each case there's been something very very positive that's come out of it so yeah i i don't think i would change it wonderful answer um yeah just wonderful craig it was such such a pleasure thank you for spending the time with us here um yeah i just thank you so much for your time sir i sure appreciate it wonderful to get to know you and um, i'm looking forward to uh, connecting again i uh, i hope we can do that and uh, have a great day Take care. And thanks again uh, to Craig Womack, uh, former president and CEO of Sharper Image, uh, for speaking to me on leadership for so long. I sure appreciate your time, brother. What a, what a phenomenal human being.
So I already told you, check out, of course, lifeisaboutmoments.com and, and find out more about writing your story, creating an, uh, an autobiographical book. Uh, what, a, what, a cool, what a cool thing to do, especially at that stage in life when he's accomplished and done so much. It's a, it, I, love the, I just love the idea of, of him drawing out the stories and other people and being able to do that as well. So thanks again for listening. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review. And I mean it, if you haven't subscribed at this point, uh, just check it out. You know, go on to Apple Podcasts probably if you're on your iPhone or if you're on an Android. You can use anything. You can use Stitcher, uh, Spotify. You can use Google Play. You can use Podbean, whatever podcast player you use. But subscribe to the show, and that way you will get uh, now what we're doing. Of course, we're back to two episodes a week. I have so many phenomenal interviews ready to go out to you. So there is a lot coming your way. So make sure you subscribe to the podcast. You won't miss a thing. We have... Uh, we have a world-famous mountain climber coming up, the first woman to climb Everest from both sides. That interview will be coming in a couple of weeks here for you. Uh, we have the vocal coach to Tony Robbins and virtually every singer, actor, and sports authority you can imagine. Uh, he's coming on the show, of course. And just so, and we even have an episode coming out with my climbing partner, David Shea. So shout out to David. We're going to be doing uh, an adventure coming up soon called The Lowest to Highest, going from Badwater uh, uh, Death Valley in California, all the way to the peak of Mount Whitney, biking, hiking, climbing. It's a, an incredible journey, but we're prepping and getting ready for that adventure. So we talk a lot. We just kind of shoot the breeze and talk climbing, and, and you'll hear a lot of uh, embarrassing stories about me. So that one's coming up, and so much more. So stay subscribed, stay right, everyone. So, so grateful for your listening. Uh, and I will talk to you real soon. As usual, get out there this week and crush it. <laughs>